Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Death of the Soviet Union and Russia Today, Russian and Ukrainian History Part 5. The date, April 2022nd. My name is Bell Avis, and this represents the last of the Russian and Ukrainian historian podcasts. Quote, Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. These were the famous words of Winston Churchill in describing Russia or the Soviet Union as it existed in 1939. But for me, not quite so much. I feel if you understand the history of Russia, if you understand their roots that go all the way back to medieval times, even to the Kevin Russ at the early Middle Ages, I think all of a sudden Russia makes sense. That they aren't operating as we would understand it in a modern sense. That even Putin doesn't operate in the same sense as a modern nation, even as other American rivals such as China, or even former enemies such as Japan, which also had its World War II roots back in sort of a medieval concept of itself. When we had last left off, we had, uh, we had basically finished with Joseph Stalin, one of the most evil men in the history of the world, though I'm not that big of a fan of Lenin either. But with the death of Stalin, there occurred the final accession of Nikita Khrushchev as his successor. And under him, the worst aspects of Stalinism were moderated. But it is not as if this ushered in some new era of freedom. Soviet forces crushed revolts in Hungary in 1956 and again in the Czech Republic in 1968. And World War III nearly began under Khrushchev off the coast of Florida when Cuba in 1962 decided to put missiles on the island. And he did so in the support of one of his protégés, Fidel Castro. And though the Soviet Union was more moderate in comparison to Stalinism, but that's a pretty tall comparison. One of the more famous Khrushchev lines was, quote, I can prophesy that your grandchildren in America will live under socialism. Our firm conviction is that capitalism will give way to socialism sooner or later. Whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you, unquote. That was the moderate voice of the Soviet Union, by the way. The same Cuban Missile Crisis weakened Khrushchev and actually led to a new Soviet leader, Leonid Brezhnev, who ruled from 1964 to 1982. And it was his hubris that led the Soviets to invading Afghanistan, something for centuries, actually millennia, would-be conquerors have tried to do. The Russians learned what the Persians and the British had learned, which was not a good idea. As with Russia itself, only the Mongols well, or the Macedonians, could conquer this land. The Russian impasse in Afghanistan severely weakened the Red Army and in some ways severely weakened the entire regime. When Brezhnev died in 1982, most elite groups understood that the Soviet economy was in trouble. Due to senility, Brezhnev had not been uh, effective in controlling the country during his last few years. And after he died, a couple of old, very old men, Yuri V. Andropov and then Konstantin Chernenko, led the country, sort of, from 1982 until 1985. 
but their administrations failed to address critical issues. And Dropo believed that the economic stagnation could be remedied by greater worker discipline and cracking down on corruption. He did not regard the structure, the fundamental structure of the Soviet financial system itself, that was the cause behind the country's growing economic issues. And this brings us to the eighth and final leader of the Soviet Union. He was the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union from 1985 until 1991. And he was also the country's head of state from 1988 until 1991 again, serving as chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet from 1988 to 1989, and later even president of the Soviet Union, a relatively new title in the 70-year history of that union, all the way until 1991. Now, ideologically, Gorbachev initially adhered to Marxism and Leninism, although they had moved towards social democracy by the 1990s. Here's what was always interesting about Gorbachev, because we now come to a figure that I was able to see with my own eyes. Because he was young, because he was charismatic, because he, he knew how to handle the cameras, during one famous trip to Washington, he actually got out of his limo and went and greeted people. People seem to think that here he is, the true moderate guy. He's going to bring the Soviet Union into the fold and so forth. Here's one of the problems, though. You don't get to be general secretary of the Soviet Union, or at least of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, without doing some things that might be a little sketchy. A terrible analogy is you do not make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Somewhere along the line, Gorbachev probably broke a few eggs. Now, when he became head of the Communist Party in 1985, he launched something called Perestroika, the restructuring. It seemed that initially, even Gorbachev maybe believed that the fundamental economic structure of the Soviet Union was sound, and therefore only minor reforms were needed, just like in drop-off. But, uh, and thus he pursued a monetary policy that aimed to increase economic growth while increasing capital investment. And capital investment was to improve the technological basis of the Soviet economy and promote specific structural economic changes. Again, he figured he could just kind of tinker around the edges. And his goal was quite plain. He wanted the Soviet Union to be on par economically with the West. The problem was, is, is that from the inception of Stalinism and his five-year plans, his purges, the, even the years under, under you know, again, relatively moderate people like, uh, like Khrushchev and certainly not really a moderate Leonid Brezhnev, they had just fallen so far behind the West. And not just even the Soviet Union itself, but it's sort of puppet states around them, Poland, East Germany, the Czech Republic, or what was Czechoslovakia at the time, had all fallen behind Western nations, such as Britain, France, certainly West Germany, Italy, Spain, and most of all, the United States. Now, there were a lot of issues with that from a fundamental and structural sense. But part of Gorbachev's sense of urgency was spurred by an incident that occurred early in his term, an incident that occurred in the Ukraine, and that was the Chernobyl disaster. This was a nuclear accident that occurred on April 26, 1986 at the number four reactor in the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. 
And it was near the city of Pripyat in the north of the Ukrainian Soviet Social Republic. Remember, and this is important to make that distinction, there was a Russian Republic and there was a Ukraine Republic. Now, there were also other republics. There were uh, a Georgian Republic and, and other republics throughout. That was, remember, the true term of it was the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics or also called the Soviet Union. So Ukraine was its own, what we'll just call for these purposes, an SSR within the Soviet Union. Now, Chernobyl was considered the worst nuclear disaster in history, both in cost and in casualties. Now, there was the obvious thing that happened at Chernobyl, which was the destruction of life in a major blow to Soviet prestige. In other words, the Soviets couldn't get this right. But there's kind of an ancillary effect to that. Chernobyl stands not just as one of the great nuclear disasters of all time, but one of the few of the great nuclear disasters. We, we think in terms of three, uh, three Mile Island, a disaster that occurred in 1979, but nobody was actually killed in it. Then, during uh, a flooding in Japan, one of their nuclear reactors uh, went went ballistic. It was a big issue. But again, only one individual died. What all this has meant is, is that the one true green energy that is capable of providing all of the needs, not just for the developed world, but for the developing world as well, has been taken offline. That's one of those legacies of Chernobyl. Here's another one. Because nations such as Germany took off all of their nuclear power plants, they then doubled down on their reliance on fossil fuels. Who controls a lot of their fossil fuels? Who gives them most of their, their, uh, the, the energy necessary to run Germany, for example? Why, that would be Russia. And who controls Russia? Vladimir Putin. Part of the reason that we are in the mess we are in in Ukraine today is because that powerful figures like Angela Merkel, the 14-year chancellor of Germany, was unwilling or maybe even unable to confront Putin because of the reliance on these fossil fuels. And yet, why not just build power plants, nuclear power plants? France did it, but Germany was reluctant and everybody remembers Chernobyl. And in case there was any kind of a, a reminder necessary, shells were fired, not just at Chernobyl, but other nuclear power plants within the Ukraine from Russian artillery. And again, that concern, this concept of a ginormous nuclear cloud flowing over Western Europe is the stuff of nightmares that precludes people from figuring out a safer way to harness the one energy that can, again, replace fossil fuel and not destroy the environment. And unlike solar or hydro or wind, nuclear power could replace them all. Keep in mind this. After 20 years of subsidies to solar, to wind, to hydro, they still only constitute 12% of energy within the United States. The other 88% is still a combination of fossil fuels and still some nuclear power. But I digress. The goal 
of Russian leaders since Peter the Great unleashed the first great wave of modernization and westernization has been that Russia would catch up to the West. This was the vision of Gorbachev. He wasn't achieving it, and that is when he decided on perestroika. After about two years of trying to do this, Gorbachev concluded that more profound structural changes were necessary. And that's why in 1987 and 1988, he pushed through reforms that went less than, well, halfway at least to creating a semi-free market system. And the consequences of this form of semi-mixed economy with the contradictions of the reforms themselves brought economic chaos to the country and great unpopularity to Gorbachev. One of the interesting things is is that when Deng, Mao's immediate successor, began to allow Western practices, to allow a a sort of a form of capitalism and certainly free trade in China, and this would have occurred in the 1980s, he didn't do it really by half measures. He opened up the system a lot, in fact. And now we're seeing Xi starting to close it down a little bit, but it wasn't sort of these half measures that Gorbachev did. Gorbachev wanted his cake and eat it too. He wanted a semi-market system, but he still wanted absolute control over everything, as in the past of Soviet economic policies. And, well, it kind of meant uh, uh, he didn't succeed at either one. His country was then neither capitalist nor as authoritarian as he needed it to be to maintain his rule. And at the end of the day, Gorbachev just he wasn't that kind of a ruthless guy like Stalin to run purges, or maybe even Putin for that matter. For example, Gorbachev rejected the Brezhnev Doctrine. This was the idea that the Soviet Union had the right to intervene militarily in other Marxist-Leninist countries if their governments were threatened. Gorbachev instead launched Glasnost, which meant openness, as the second vital plank of his reform efforts. The first was perestroika, the second was glasnost. He believed that the opening up of the political system, essentially trying to democratize it, was the only way to overcome inertia in the political and bureaucratic apparatus, which had a significant interest in maintaining the status quo. And in addition, he believed that the path to economic and social recovery required the inclusion of people in the political process. So Glasnost also allowed the media more freedom of expression and editorials complaining of depressed conditions and the government's inability to correct them began to appear. Again, he's moving down the road to reform. And when his reforms aren't working, he doesn't just, whether it's the the stomach or the monstrosity of a Stalin to go back to, if you will, those sort of hardcore Soviet days and crush all opposition. In March 1991, when Gorbachev launched an all-union referendum about the future of the Soviet Federation, Russia and several other republics added some other questions. And one of the Russian questions was whether the voters favored a directly elected president. They were... And they chose Yeltsin. So let me make this quick distinction here. Gorbachev was still the head of the Soviet Union. But within the Russian Federation, one of the SSRs, remember USSR, one of the SSRs was Russia. Now Russia obviously was the dominating force within it. And that is when the voters elected Boris Yeltsin as the president of the Russian Federation. 
Yeltsin used his newfound legitimacy to promote Russian sovereignty, advocate and adapt radical economic reform, and finally demanded Gorbachev's resignation. What's really happening here is Russia's going to decide to leave the Soviet Union. But if Russia does, what happens to the other Soviet socialist republics? And in fact, one of the things is they negotiated treaties with the other Baltic republics who also declared independence and Yeltsin agreed to that. Soviet attempts to discourage Baltic autonomy led to a bloody confrontation in Vilnius in January 1991, after which Yeltsin called upon Russian troops to disobey orders that would have them shoot unarmed civilians. By the end of 1992, one-third of enterprises in the services and trade fields were private, though the average Russian was not seeing the benefits of this move towards a more open system. Russia began to mint billionaires by the score. Though the businesses, and this is one of those things, so what we're talking about here is this is the period in the early 90s in which the oligarchs were formed. And it's really quite simple. What if instead Facebook was all along a government entity? What if ExxonMobil all along was the state, the United States oil company? And there was no uh, Union Pacific Railroad. That was the United States Railroad. Well, what if one day we decide to privatize this, but instead of, let's say, issuing stock to the public, one person decided to take it over? What if Facebook all along was sort of a U.S. communications uh, hub and Zuckerberg, in his wonderful position of running it for the government, decides to take it over? Only now he's running it for private purposes and can start to earn money. That's how the oligarchs were born. Whether it was Russian gas, Russian oil, Russian airlines, Russian nickel deposits, as these governmental entities went private, these guys took them over and became very, very wealthy. During Yeltsin's presidential terms, the weakened Russian state failed to fulfill its primary responsibilities. The legal system, suffering from a lack of resources and trained personnel, and a legal code geared to the new market economy collapsed. Low salaries drained experienced jurists in the private sector, and there's now also widespread corruption. Remember those oligarchs? Within law enforcement, the legal system as judges and police officials resorted to taking bribes to supplement their meager incomes. Here's always an issue, which, thank God, at least today, the United States is not party to. How would it be if, let's say, I was some rich guy and I'm living in the city of Chicago. I've got all kinds of money. I throw a crazy party and my neighbors are upset and there's all kinds of noise and the police showed up and I handed them buckets of cash and said, ignore those guys. And in fact, go downstairs and rough up the neighbors. I'll throw whatever parties I like after all the police are rich. For the most part, our police in the United States, for the most part, not everywhere, but for the most part, they would probably arrest my butt, throw me in jail for trying to bribe a, a police officer. Most of them would do that. It doesn't work this way in most countries. Mexico is the classic example. Police officers roll in and they're going to control the, the drug cartels within Mexico. The problem is the Mexicans will bribe a police officer who, let's say, can make 50, the equivalent of, let's say, twenty-five dollars or $50,000 a year, and these cartels give them 250000 And all of a sudden, these police officers, so remember, I'm the big new police chief. I'm going to rein in the cartels. I can't even trust my own men. 
Heck, they might they might put a bullet in the back of my brain when I'm bursting through a door trying to get the cartels. This is kind of a little bit of what happened to Russia in the 1990s under Yeltsin. Reigning in that corruption was going to be one of the reasons why a certain guy who we're going to talk about, we've talked about him the whole time, but we're going to talk about him, came up. So again, there's lots of corruption. There's lots of bribing. Law enforcement agencies proved unable to combat the rising crime. The collapse of medical services also led to a decline in life expectancy and concerns of the negative population rate, things that, by the way, Russia is still fighting today, 30 years later. Now, all of this made some Russians nostalgic for the past, and along came a man who seemed to be a fusion of the new Russia with its old strengths. And now, on to our stage. It took us almost five podcasts to get here, even though I've been talking about him the whole time. Vladimir Putin began playing a more critical role toward the end of Yeltsin's tenure as president. So, a couple of things. In 1991, Yeltsin's elected president of the Russian Federation. He demands Gorbachev's resignation. Gorbachev is one of the few sort of, sort of authoritarian figures in the history of mankind. China's got a few of them right now, like Hu Jintao is one of them, in which he got to retire. He got to go and be in some dacha, maybe along the Black Sea, somewhere around there, maybe near Sochi. I don't know where Gorbachev lived. Uh, but in other words, he got to retire and go on and live his life. He even wrote a book and made uh, serious Western money from that book. So he basically retired and became a kind of a rich guy. So Gorbachev retires and now the Soviet Union basically dissolves. This all happens in the early 1990s. All of those SSRs now go their own way. And this is what's super crucial at this point. Two of them, Belarus with its capital in Minsk, which is basically a buffer state that sits between Poland and the formal Russian Federation. And the Ukraine gets its independence. One of the things that Putin is talking about now, one of the reasons he actually blames it on his on the Soviet Union's forebears is, is that they allowed the Ukrainian the Ukraine to have its own republic within the USSR. And therefore, when the USSR dissolves in the early 1990s, Ukraine gets their independence. Also, the three Baltic republics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania also get their independence. Azerbaijan and a couple of other places, Georgia, which I talked about in my first podcast on Russia. Putin invaded it in 1999. Putin's been invading countries his whole tenure. Uh, it's just, it's sort of like we just woke up to it in 2014 and today. But the Ukraine gets their independence. This is a, a, a crucial point. So Putin now becomes to sort of sort of rises up in power during the soviet period putin was joined the kgb the russian secret police and worked in east germany for many years fluent in german and proficient in english putin worked for the liberal mayor of st petersburg anatoly subchek in the initial post-soviet period ended up in moscow when subchek failed to be re-elected mayor in 1996 Putin ran for the job, and in 1998, Putin became director of the Federal Security Service, one of the successor organizations of the KGB. In other words, he not only came up in the secret police, but in a way, he ran it. 
In the first podcast, I talked about the Ryazan apartment building explosions. These were explosions that came at a crucial point. Putin was the prime minister. As prime minister, Putin blamed Chechen secessionists for bombing those apartment buildings and that they killed scores of Russian civilians. This prompted the Moscow government to send Russian forces into the republic once again. But there has never been evidence that has proved Chechen involvement in these bombings. And there is evidence that a fifth apartment building that did not blow up, but was found to have a series of explosives within, was linked to the FSS at the time when Putin was running it. So we don't have concrete evidence that Putin blew up apartment buildings and essentially killed his own people. But knowing what we know now, knowing what we know of his tenure over the last 25 years, is it really so hard to believe that one is true? Regardless of whether Putin did it or not, I think he did, his popularity soared. This was, after all, a decisive man. And one of the other things that has happened in the 1990s, I talked about all that corruption. As Yeltsin had gone further and further into his term, he became less and less effective. In other words, whether it was age or illness simply caught up with him. That's why the young 40-something Putin represented strength and decisiveness and purpose. He also ran an anti-corruption campaign, which was also very popular. When Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, fell quickly to the Russians, Putin's popularity soared. And Yeltsin, having chosen Putin as his successor, resigned on December 31st, 1999. Putin became acting president, and his first official act as president was to grant Yeltsin a pardon for any illegal activities he might have committed during his administration. Then, and this is very important, in the presidential election held in March 2000, Putin easily won election, winning 53% of the vote to secure a full term as president. And, we have had Putin increasingly more authoritarian ever since. This was arguably the last time that Russia conducted a fair election, but Putin, the ex-KGB operative, represented something the Russians sought, power, back in the hands of a single person. Remember how I began this podcast of kind of decrying Churchill's statement that Russia is such a mystery, it's such a crazy place, we can't understand it. Well, I think one of the things we can understand is, is that there is always this sort of yearning on the part of people for that sort of strong hand, that, that rule, that person who's going to say, I'm going to solve your problems for you. But in the United States, we have built in over 230 years a, a fairly, I don't know, skeptical attitude. Britain has it too. France does as well. So does West Germany and on and on. But Russia never developed that muscle. They never developed that attribute. What they do when they encounter in times of trouble is immediately seek a strong, single individual to take all power into their hands. That is kind of what the Russians uh, voted for in 2000 when they picked Vladimir Putin. And unfortunately, now they're reaping a lot of that. There are three factors of governance 
The first is a personal desire for independence in thought and body. So where is the line between the individual and societal needs? So we have to think about that. Every person, Russian, Chinese, or American, desires some independence of action. The second is a need or desire to live among humans in a society. No man is an island. And the third is a desire to have someone else help with the cares of life. It is this instinct that is taken advantage of by people like Putin. At some juncture, a man like Putin will project strength, real or imagined. And it is at that point, a person or persons must cede their independence for their perceived betterment, real or imagined. If citizens did not look to their governments for daily governance, it would be harder for other citizens to take advantage of them. But when maximum ambition is married to that of state power, you get a Kim, a Saddam, a Xi, and a Putin. A feckless and perhaps drunken Yeltsin, trying to fill the gaps left behind by the collapse of the Soviet Union and incapable of helping Russia navigate through those tumultuous years post-1991 when the Soviet Union fell, uncertainty and anxiety took its place. Then comes along the 40-something robust former mayor of St. Petersburg, currently prime minister, projecting the certainty and delaying the fear with an image of strength and purpose. Now, even the United States often, often succumbs to this in placing trust in figures such as Barack Obama or even Donald Trump. But unlike Russia, we have a 230-year history of setting guardrails and institutions around our presidents. I'm always fascinated by how the party in power almost always loses congressional seats in the midterms regardless of performance. I didn't like it so much in 2018 when it happened, especially when Nancy Pelosi gets the gavel back as the Speaker of the House. Not thrilled about it, but there's sort of a a back-of-the-mind chuckle the way it always works. They gave the Republicans two branches of the government, the presidency and the Congress, and then and SCOTUS obviously being the third. And then two years later, they said, okay, you got your shot. Now we're taking it back. It is a way for the American people to place checks on the ambitions of our politicians. But this limiting desire is hardwired into our culture. And unfortunately, I do not believe that is the case with Russia. Of these four podcasts, the most significant threat is that of authoritarianism. From the Dukes and the Kievan Rus to Ivan the Terrible to Peter and Catherine the Great and through the Bolsheviks, Russia reverts to strong, single person, usually one man, obviously not the case in Catherine's thing, Russia reverts to strong person rule. Here's an example that I shared before in a a couple of previous podcasts. An American university president was in a city near Moscow in the mid-1990s. Some of the dignitaries were complaining about the high prices of the meat in the local butcher shop. There was just the one store, which was once the dispensary of meat in the city for the Soviet Union. The one dispensary of meat in the Soviet Union. The university president suggested that they encourage another Russian to open another butcher shop and have that shop, well, charge lower prices for the beef, thus compelling the original shop to match the prices, and so on and so on. And build, God forbid, maybe some efficiencies in how they process the meat, sell the meat, market the meat, whatever. 
the Russians exclaimed that the butcher shop was the shop. They could not grasp the concept of real competition. After all, that was the shop that the state set up, and that's where they were going to get their beef. Can this be fixed? Japan, South Korea, and Poland are more recent examples of where democracy can flourish. And even as late as the 18th and 19th centuries, France has turned totalitarianism only to find its way back. But it should be noted that there needs to be a confluence of circumstances. In one of my podcasts called Four Revolutions, it was, uh, I put that out about two or three months ago, I laid out the differences between the French, Chinese, Russian, and American revolutions. Not only did the American one have a basis on English common law and was heavily influenced by thinkers such as Locke and Montesquieu, but it also featured George Washington as the central, indispensable figure. Washington's judgment, including stepping down from powers three years before his death, created a template upon which the Constitution was built. Diffusion of power. Not in Russia. Even when they attempt to move away, they encounter issues and spring right back. Is there something in that Russian character? No, but there's definitely something in Russian history. Again, not to lament this forever. Japan up until recent times, was in in some regards a modern and yet still medieval country that viewed their emperors not as sort of figurehead rulers, but as, as a pathway to the divine. This was their this was their view in World War II. They have obviously created a very modern, successful culture. To understand Putin is to not necessarily to understand Lenin or Stalin, but it helps. Instead, it is better to understand Ivan, Peter, Catherine, and Nicholas. The czars tell the tale of Putin. And though Ivan ruled a large realm, it was not the largest on earth. And though Catherine commanded vast armies, she did not possess nuclear weapons. History tells us why we have Putin and why Putin is Russia but it tells us little about what to do when a person such as Ivan the Terrible had nuclear weapons, one of the largest stockpiles on earth. This fusion of authoritarianism, size, and nuclear capability makes Putin stand out. Authoritarianism, fed up from the czars, refined by the Soviet Union, tells the tale about Putin's power. The issue is, We have to obviously approach Russia with kid gloves in a way that we would not with any other nation because of those nuclear weapons. Now, what will happen to Putin? I have off-cited the concept of holding the wolf by the ears, and and in that regard, I'm citing the Roman Emperor Tiberius. If the wolf slips your grip, you are dead. As long as you hold on to the ears, you can command the wolf. With the invasion of Ukraine and the unified response, three things are happening. First, the failure of a quick victory ruins Putin's veneer of competence. Second, the economic freefall of the economy takes away Putin's image of strength. And third, the movement away from Russian oil, which in my opinion has not gone nearly fast enough, eliminates his best chance at reclaiming the other two. I believe Putin is in severe trouble. Here is a sort of a macabre uh, trivia question. What do Peter the Third, Paul the First, Alexander the Second, 
and Nicholas II, all czars of Russia, have in common? They were all murdered, and murdered within a 150-year period of time. Can Putin avoid such fate? I don't know. But again, none of those czars had nukes. Thank you for listening to this latest conservative historian podcast. I strongly encourage you to listen to the first four of this series and heck, all the other podcasts. I have over 105 of them now. And I really would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the earlier ones if you like this one. It's we talk about all kinds of different things. We've been to Africa. We've been to China. We've even talked about Pachacuti, one of the great leaders of the Incan Empire. So please, please take a listen in on all of them. And they're all free. This is Bell Avis. Thanks for listening.